0: Those lines that we sang, uh, what can wash away my sins and what can make me whole again, um, those are two of the most important truths that we, can, that we can even think about or embrace as human beings. We need our sins washed away and we need to be made whole again. We are broken, we are less than human in many ways because of our sin And so we need to be made whole again, and we don't know those truths apart from the Bible, from Scripture. And so let me remind you, as we do every so often, what it is that we're doing here on Sunday mornings. We're definitely coming to worship God, and part of worshiping God is understanding who He is and and knowing who He is through His Word. And there's no other access that we have to the plan of salvation, to the forgiveness of sins, to being made whole again than through the scriptures. I mean, as I was singing that song, I was, I was reminded of and thinking about Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Listen to what he says here. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What are those? It's the scriptures. It's the Old Testament, and now we have the New Testament, which is built on the Old Testament and the completion of that story, and how you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, whole, equipped for every good work." And so if you're holding a copy of the Bible this morning in your hands, you have the creator God of the universe's words to humanity. You have his plan of salvation. You have an explanation of his character and his grace. And you and I come to know him through the scriptures. And as Paul tells Timothy, all scripture, including the Old Testament, including the book of Exodus, including the book of Leviticus, all of it, is profitable for us and so that's why every Sunday morning we come in and we dive into the scriptures because we want to know God and there's nothing more important than that and we want to know his plan of salvation and we want to relate to him through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and so it's all about him and it's about him through the Bible and so join with me this morning and open your Bible to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we're going to be this morning. As you're opening up there, I became a teenager right in the middle of the 1990s. Some of you are like, I didn't know you were that young, (laughs) 1990s. I was already retired in the 1990s, yes. Some of you are like, I didn't know you were that old. (laughs) But I became a teenager right in the middle of the 1990s and During that time period in my life, I was growing in my passion for the sport of basketball. Some of you had no idea that basketball was so important to me, but it was. And I was developing, as I turned 13 and 14 and 15, I was developing a greater and greater interest in this sport, and I was spending more and more time playing it and was going to camps and trying to get better at it. And about that time, in the middle of the 1990s, some of you may remember this, some genius company released a series, a line of t-shirts, and one of them was was this shirt. You guys remember this? Basketball? Oh, I do. (laughs) Basketball is life. The rest is just details. And I loved it. I loved the way that was phrased. And you could get in the mid-90s, you could get the same style of t-shirt for whatever sport you were into, baseball, football, hockey, whatever it was. I barely knew hockey existed then living in the South, but apparently (laughs) it was a sport. But for me, it was basketball. I loved basketball and this shirt was it for me. I loved the message that this conveyed. And I think I loved it because it it sort of bolstered my growing identity as a basketball player. I was increasingly thinking of myself as a basketball player, a gym rat who would go to the gym anytime he could and shoot basketball and play pickup games and and engage with the sport in any way I could. And so I was beginning to think of my life as committed to this sport. And in many ways, I mean, I was a believer at this time, but in many ways I was thinking of basketball as the defining feature of my life outside of Christ and my relationship with him. And I loved about, what I loved about this shirt was the simplicity of the statement. Basketball is life. Everything else is just details. Everything else supports the defining aim and substance of my life. Everything else is geared toward getting better at this particular sport. Now, in many ways... You could say, you could design a t-shirt for the nation of Israel that would say God's covenant in Exodus 19 to 24 is life. This is the defining substance of the nation of Israel. This determines who they are and how they should think of themselves. And this is and should become their identity. And everything else is just details. I mean, that would make total sense, and that would be absolutely correct for them. I have read multiple times in studying for this passage in Exodus 19 that everything else in the Old Testament is commentary on Exodus 19 through 24. This, in many ways, is the high point. This is the defining feature of the nation of Israel, and everything else flows off of the covenant that God makes with them here. Everything else is just commentary on how Israel either obeys this covenant or, as you see, most often breaks this covenant. In Exodus 24, at the very end of this section, you see this. Moses took the book of the covenant. It's everything in these chapters. It's what God communicates to Israel and then to Moses. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the case law that is here. And it's what is going to be included in our chapter today. And he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And if you met me in the mid-90s and I was wearing that shirt, it would have helped you to understand me as a teenager. And I think many times we struggle with the Old Testament, We can't really piece it together. We don't really understand how it flows and the narrative and the story that's being told and how it leads up to the New Testament and to the work of Christ. And a lot of times we don't understand our Old Testament because we don't know what God called Israel to be and what he called them to do in his covenant with them at Sinai. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy is basically a retelling of this covenant and reapplying it, and then the rest of the Old Testament flows off of Exodus and off of Deuteronomy. And so as we get into this book of the covenant over the next few weeks, maybe even up to a month or two, as we study this together, let me challenge you that if you will engage with these chapters and you will understand the substance of them, then it will help you in your reading and your grasp of the Old Testament, and then when you grasp the Old Testament in a clearer and better way, it will enrich your reading and your study of the New Testament. Because the Old Testament prepares us for Christ's coming and the New Testament. And there's so many connections, as you'll even see this morning. So, we're going to study all of Exodus 19 today, and what you're going to see in this chapter, what we're going to study, is this. Three... Identity-defining truths for God's covenant people. Three, identity-defining truths. These truths will shape who Israel is to be and how they are to think of themselves throughout the rest of the Old Testament as God's covenant people. Now, let me say, before we get to the first one of these, a little helpful um, thing regarding how we understand the Old Testament and the New Testament here, right? This morning, we're definitely dealing with Israel in the Old Covenant. This is the making of the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. And Israel is not the same thing as the church in the New Testament. There are distinctions between the two. The New Testament presents our situation as different than Israel's, and so you can't just flatten it out and say they're the same. However, the New Testament also, as you'll see later, near the end of our time this morning, the New Testament also uses language regarding Israel and their covenant with God and applies that language to the church. And so there are some similarities and there are some differences. And so you have to think carefully and understand when you're talking about Israel and then what the application is as we transition to the New Testament people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either way, there will be much that you and I can learn and apply to our lives from what God says here to the nation of Israel. So first one of these identity-defining truths is this. Covenant people, and Israel here in particular, exist for others. Exist for others, for the world, you might say. This is in verses 1 through 8. So we've been following, as we're going through Exodus, we've been following Israel's movement out of Egypt. They were freed from Egypt by the Passover. They headed out into the wilderness, and God obviously brought them through the Red Sea, and destroyed the Egyptian army, and now they have been making their way through various regions of wilderness on their way ultimately to the promised land, but first they're heading to this location, Mount Sinai. And after about three months, they arrive there. Look at verses one and two. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day... They came into the wilderness of Sinai. You've seen in previous chapters, there are different wildernesses. The wilderness of Sin is one that they came through, and now they enter into a different region. This is the region where the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, is located. Verse 2 They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, the name Horeb is not used here, the name Sinai of this mountain is not used here to define the mountain, but you and I as good readers of the book of Exodus are expected to make a connection with the mountain that Moses had the burning bush experience on in Exodus chapter 3. In fact, God promised Moses that he would, as a sign, would bring him back to this mountain with the entire nation of Israel, and he's fulfilling that promise Now, as you're moving through your Old Testament, Israel arrives here at Sinai in Exodus 19, and they stay at Sinai, at this mountain, all the way until Numbers chapter 10. So everything we're going to read for the rest of the book of Exodus happens in one location. Leviticus happens there, and the first part of the book of Numbers happens there as well. Numbers 10, you can go read it later, but it describes them departing from Mount Sinai, and while they're encamped in front of the mountain here, you'll see in verse 3 that Moses goes up the mountain to hear from God. Look at verse 3. While Israel's encamped before the mountain, the end of verse 2, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, we'll get to that in a minute, and so he goes up to hear from God, and I want you to make note Of the beginning of verse, I'm sorry, the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 6. Okay, so the end of verse 3: thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, now go to the end of verse 6. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so, whatever God's gonna say in between here is something very important. And it's something that he wants Moses to communicate to the people of Israel word for word. He wants him to recount this exactly as it was given to him. And what you and I are going to find in verses 4 through 6 is going to summarize God's purpose for the nation of Israel as his covenant people. This is a general big picture headline statement of what God wants for Israel in the entire Old Testament. In many ways, these verses form the mission statement for Israel. They define who they are as a people. You could think of these as the charter for the nation of Israel. They're beginning here, essentially, as an official political entity, and this defines what God wants them to be, or who He wants them to be, and what He wants them to be. So, what does He tell them? First, look at verse 4. God gives the the background and the context for how they got to this point. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And so the background to this, how they ended up at Sinai, is God delivered Israel from Egypt. We've seen that explained over the whole first part of the book of Exodus. And he won a great victory over Pharaoh at the Red Sea, over Pharaoh's army. God brought Israel out of Egypt, gave them freedom from centuries of slavery. And the Exodus story is seen here as a flight to freedom, as God is pictured as an eagle who bears them away on his wings. And by his power. That's what he says there. How I bore you on eagle's wings. And then at the end of this verse, he gives them the goal of the exodus. To bring them to himself. God freed Israel not just to give them freedom and get them out of slavery. He freed them in order to bring them to himself. And not just to himself at Sinai. Where he's going to meet with them. This is talking about his big ultimate purposes for them so that he can dwell among them and be with them and bless them, so that they can enter into a covenant relationship with him and dwell in his presence. Now, when you and I, as New Covenant believers, think about Israel and the Old Covenant, it's, it's very easy, and there's a temptation for us to think that the Old Covenant is all rules and laws for Israel, and that Israel... relationship with God was one of legality. And that if they would just obey God, then they would be his people and they would enter into a relationship with him. And so there's a temptation. And unfortunately, some Christians have taught this over the years that the old covenant is by law and by obedience and the new covenant is by grace. But that is not accurate at all. And that's the reason that God starts the way he does here. God puts this entire covenant on a foundation of grace. His relationship with Israel is built on his merciful deliverance of them from sin and from slavery. God is the one who initiates, he is the one who delivers. He brings the people to himself in his pure kindness and not because of any merit or any obedience or any goodness of their own. In fact, he brings them to himself despite who they are and despite their sinful hearts and their rebellion, as we saw in the wilderness, against him. And so you have to understand this covenant is a covenant of grace with Israel. It is built on that and meant to be believed and trusted and accepted by faith. And then God says that when he brings them to himself and they enter into a relationship with him by grace, now he's going to lay out the requirements for them. And he's going to tell them because they have entered into a grace relationship with him, now they are to live in a certain way. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, based on this foundation of grace, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Israel's responsibility in this is to obey God's voice and to hear the words of the covenant, believe them, and obey them. They must respond to God's grace and his salvation and deliverance with humble obedience to him. And if they will do that within this relationship, then they will fulfill God's purposes for them. Look at the rest of verse five. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then essentially you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. They don't become God's people by obedience, but they fulfill the role that God has for them by keeping his covenant. And there's a distinction between those two. They don't become his people by obedience. They fulfill the purpose and the role he has for them by obeying and keeping the covenant. And that role, that identity, is that they will be his treasured possession. Look at verse 5. You will... Be my treasure. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, this is interesting here. God is saying, listen, listen, I am the king of everything. Every nation belongs to me. I own it all. But if you will respond in humble, faith-fueled obedience to me and keep my covenant, then you will be a, tr- a special treasure to me. Think of this as a king who owns the entire realm, but he keeps a private treasure storehouse for himself. That's the word that is used of Israel here. He has a private collection of riches and of jewels and of wealth that he stores for himself. And God says to Israel, if you'll obey, that's what you will be. That will be your status before me. And so that defines who they are. But now, what is their role relating to those other nations. And that's what God gives them in verse 6. Look there. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so you have two descriptions of Israel here. A kingdom of priests is one and a holy nation is the other. And these two descriptions describe Israel's role in the world. And so you think of these two descriptions as sort of a right speaker and a left speaker that fill out the sound and sort of give you surround sound, describing the role that Israel will play in the world. And so what are they? Well, first of all, he says you'll be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest is the go-between between between the divine and between humanity, both ways— They represent God to the people and they represent the people to God. And so Israel here was to do both of those things, sort of form as a a mediation between God and between the rest of the nations. They were to show the world what a flourishing life in relationship with God looks like. They were to put the beauty of God's love and his covenant-keeping love to them on display through their obedience to his law. They were to impart God's truth to the nations. And as they did that, as they were a kingdom of priests representing God to the people and the people to God, as a go-between, they would be a holy nation. Here's the other speaker. And that word nation is focused on Israel as a political entity. They're being formed into a nation here, not just a, a group of people who are related to one another and who share ethnicity. Now they're a political entity, and as they live together under God's covenant law, under his word and under his kingship, they would rightly represent him in holiness, and they would show the people and show the world what it looks like to live well, and they would be set apart for God's purposes. And so let me bring all of this together and say this. In summary, Israel's role was to be blessed by God as his treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation. They were to be blessed by God and honored to live in relationship with him in order that they could bless the other nations. And this is exactly the purpose that God told Abraham he had for his descendants. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the nations shall be blessed. One set of authors put it like this and I think it's helpful to see someone smarter than me explain this to you. The divine purpose in the covenant established between God and Israel at Sinai is unfolded in Exodus 19, 3-6. As a kingdom of priests, they will function to make the ways of God known to the nations and also to bring the nations into a right relationship to God. Israel will display to the rest of the world within its covenant community the kind of relationships first to God— And then to one another and to the physical world that God intended originally for all of humanity. In fact, through Abraham's family, God purposes and plans to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. In this way, through the family of Abraham, through Israel, his last Adam, he will bring about a resolution of the sin and death caused by the first Adam. Israel is the last Adam at this point in the story, although we know there's a ultimate last Adam who's coming later. And so that's their purpose. And how does Israel respond to this? Look at verses 7 and 8 there. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And so they understand their responsibilities to be obedient. They understand the purpose that God has for them. And they commit to obeying this covenant. They tell God that they're going to follow through on this. And this, their affirmation of obedience and their desire to obey is so important for you and I later on in the story to understand what happens with the golden calf incident and why that incident is so dramatic and so heinous in their breaking of the covenant almost right away, and it reveals the sinfulness that's in their heart. But here, they commit to this purpose that God has for them. So, let me bring this to you and I really quickly before we get on to our next truth. Let me just remind you, your life does not exist for yourself. My life does not exist for me to use however I want to. To do what I want to. I literally saw someone at the zoo yesterday with a t-shirt on that said, I do what I want. And I laughed. Hilarious to live that way and to think that you're actually in control of your life to the point where you can do whatever you want to. How horrible to be driven along by your own desires, your sinful desires, and to be enslaved to them. The way to live well and to live a flourishing life and to have satisfaction and joy and happiness is to understand that you and I don't exist for ourselves. We exist for a greater and a bigger purpose. It is not all about you. It is not all about me. The universe does not center on me and what I want. Thank goodness. As a church, we don't exist for ourselves. We're not here to just have fun together, although we do want to have a community that is filled with joy and happiness around the gospel of Jesus Christ as we're growing together. But we don't exist for ourselves. We haven't been planted on this street corner, our building, and our community for ourselves to make life easier. We exist for the nations. We exist for those around us to bring the gospel to them and to demonstrate what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God. You and I are here to know God and to bring his glory and his truth to the nations. And so that's the first identity-defining truth for Israel, for God's covenant people. And there's helpful application of that for us. The second one, and this will go much quicker, covenant people exhibit holiness. They understand and need to understand just how vital it is that they are holy as they enter into a relationship with a holy God. We've already seen in verse 6 that Israel is, God's purpose for them is for them to be a holy nation, to be set apart for him, and they must be set apart for him in obedience to his covenant. And you cannot read the rest of the Pentateuch without understanding just how important holiness is. I mean, it smacks you in the face as you read the book of Leviticus. It becomes increasingly clear that God demands holiness of his people. They are to be unique. They are to be set apart. Anyone who comes within close proximity to God requires consecration holiness God will not dwell in the presence of a sinful people and the sinful people will not be representative of him to the nations and so we'll see this as the story goes on after Israel commits to obeying the Lord they want this they want this role to be God's treasured possession to represent him to the nations they want to keep his covenant God makes it clear that he is going to speak to the people directly. And at the same time, he also wants to maintain Moses as a mediator. Look at verse 9, the beginning there. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And in preparation for this arrival that God promises here, The people have to take certain precautions because of who God is. They have to be ready for a holy God to come in close proximity to them as a sinful people. Look at the rest of verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so God demands that they become ritually clean and prepared to be closer to God. He gives them a few days to get ready for this. He tells them to consecrate themselves and to wash their garments. Now, this doesn't indicate to us that it's sinful to have dirty clothes. Although, some parents may want to communicate that to their children. <clears throat> might be helpful if your children believe that in some ways. But, what this is telling the people, and many of the laws in the Old Covenant, teach that people have to be ritually clean before approaching God. It teaches them the importance of holiness as they approach God, being clean and set apart to Him. He gives them further instructions in verses 12 and 13. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then if a person does touch the mountain, look at what he says in verse 13. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the the mountain. They will approach the mountain here. This reminds us of what God said to Moses when he first experienced God on this mountain at the burning bush. What did God say? Take off your sandals because this is holy ground. And it's the same sort of instructions here except on a much, much bigger scale. And the people do what they're told to do. Look at verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and gives them a further way to be ritually clean and set themselves apart. Do not go near a woman. Again, nothing wrong with the marriage relationship, but this is to prepare them to meet God in a singular hearted, singular focused way. A heart that is centered on him in prayerful consecration. And so what God is teaching here is that it is imperative for the people. It is so serious for them to understand how holy he is and that they are sinful. And to approach him requires them to be holy, to be set apart for him. And this will be a staple in the rest of the books of Moses. And so covenant people exhibit holiness. And then our third identity-defining truth Covenant people experience God. They know God. They dwell in his presence. They live in relationship to him. And so in verse 9, God promised, as you saw, that he is coming to the Israelites in a thick cloud. He's going to show up, and he's going to speak directly to the people. And now, on the third day, he arrives. Look at verses 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. It's hard, I think, to even begin to grasp what this would have been like for the Israelites. Standing at the foot of this mountain and watching the mountain basically explode, with smoke and clouds so thick that you can't see through it. And there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a trumpet blast that is incredibly loud. And all of this is happening to the point where everyone is shaking with fear in the camp below. Verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp. All of these trembling people Moses brings out of the camp to come closer to this mountain to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai, verse 18, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke was to keep them from seeing God's presence. Verse 19. I'm sorry, continue in verse 18. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The smoke continues to rise up to heaven, and the entire mountain quakes and shakes with God's presence. And God comes to the top of the mountain and calls for Moses to come up the mountain to speak with him. Look at verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, this is an important experience for Israel. We don't want to just read by what happens here. It is dramatic, and it would have been imprinted on their memory, God's presence descending on this mountain. And what this does is it should prepare them for the rest of the book of Exodus and the rest of their lives as God's people, because God is going to come and dwell in their midst. His presence will be among them in the tabernacle. Basically, the rest of the book of Exodus is going to describe the, the, the instructions for building the tabernacle and then the actual process of building it. And that is important because God's presence among his people, the fact that he lives in their center, in the center of their camp, that becomes the defining characteristic of the nation of Israel. The fact that God is with them. The only reason they're his treasured possession is because he dwells in their midst. That demonstrates their status to the nations. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, God's holy presence has to be mediated to sinful people. They can't just waltz into his presence. They have to be careful. They have to be conscious of their sin and of their uncleanness. They have to be careful in approaching him as a holy, consuming fire God. And this is spelled out here further. Look at verses 21 and 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And God presses this home further, even though he's already told them he wants to make sure that they get it. And it's amazing here because then Moses sort of disagrees with God. It kind of reminds you of Exodus 5, where Moses sort of goes back and forth with God. Look what he says, verse 23. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Moses is like, look, I've already communicated this to everyone. And they they understand it. And I would guess God is like, yeah, but these are the same people who just in the wilderness have rebelled and disobeyed over and over and over again. And so God is quite clear how important this is. Look at verse 24. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And so... The people have been prepared to hear from God. And I want to set you up for Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, famous passage. But the Ten Commandments are spoken directly to the people from the top of the mountain. You'll see in verse 25, Moses goes down to the people and speaks to them God's warning, and then immediately in chapter 20, God speaks all of these words, the ten words or the ten commandments. And so these commandments form the heart of God's covenant with his people here. And he speaks them to the people from the mountaintop, and they have just experienced his presence and should know their responsibility to obey him and keep his covenant. All right great. What does this have to do with us? We're new covenant believers. We have never been close to a mountain and have experienced God's presence like this. We certainly were not here, never seen anything like this, never experienced God in this way. So what does this have to do with you and I for today? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's a longer passage, but I do want you to turn there. I'm amazed as I study the Old Testament how many times these stories and these passages are used in the New Testament. It's like you just forget about the connections that are there, and then you're reading and you're studying and you notice one of your cross-references, and you're like, oh my goodness, There's this massive explanation and connection of this that then applies it to us as New Covenant believers. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start in verse 18. And see if you can pick up what the author of Hebrews is describing here. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What does that sound like? Israel in Exodus 19 and 20 at Mount Sinai. And he says, you have not come to this. You have not experienced this. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. No, you haven't experienced God at Mount Sinai, but you and I have a new covenant. And we have a new covenant mediator that has sprinkled His blood on us. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, this new covenant mediator. God was speaking to Israel from the mountain and giving them the Ten Commandments, but in even more dramatic and serious way, do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You and I are new covenant believers, and we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken because of the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now our worship is acceptable through him and through his work. And because of all of that, you and I have been called to freedom and to a new life, a new way of life that exhibits holiness. And we're called to offer acceptable worship to him, and that should define our lives as we go out into the world. And so now, watch what Peter says about the church as the new covenant people of God. See, if this reminds you of anything from Exodus 19. But you... Our a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies. This is why we're here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are made his people, not for ourselves, but for the world. And as we exist for the world, our lives must be defined by holiness, by consecration, And because of the kingdom we have that we've been given that can't be shaken, we worship and experience the presence of the same God who showed up on Mount Sinai. But now we walk directly into his presence through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we approach him boldly as our father, our good heavenly father. And so you and I, we are God's people, his treasured possession for the world. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for the covenant that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would build a new and a fresh identity into us. Help us to respond appropriately to what we've heard this morning in a way that honors you and exalts your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.